get it. Monday, November 2nd, 2020. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Eskra. Hope everyone had a great week outside of podcast land. Get your jackets. It is officially cold out here in Northern Virginia. Uh, real quick, a couple of ratings. One review this week. This one is from M. Deneen. Five stars. David T. episode. David and I go way back to flight school together. Probably a good thing he didn't share any stories. He has done amazing work for the veteran community, and I am proud to say we are friends. Heroes Linked is an excellent organization, and I encourage all vets to give it a look, whether you're looking for help or want to help out. Additionally, Born the Battle has done an exceptional job of showcasing veterans. Well done, Tanner. Keep up the great work. M. Deneen, you know, I wish he shared some of your flight school stories, but seriously, yes. David has contributed more than he probably gives himself credit for, and I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. And as always, feedback is always appreciated. If you subscribe, leave a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts, it helps push this podcast up in the algorithms, giving more veterans the chance to catch the information provided not only in the interviews, but in the benefits breakdown episodes and in the news releases. So thank you for helping with that. Uh, Talking news releases, we got three this week. First one says for immediate release. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced it has decided more than 34,000 Blue Water Navy disability claims under the Blue Water Navy Vietnam Veterans Act of 2019 that went into effect on January 1st, which extends the presumption of exposure to herbicides such as Agent Orange to veterans who served in the offshore waters of the Republic of Vietnam during the Vietnam War. As of September 30th, VA has processed over 34,000 of the over 69,000 claims that have been received, of which over 24,000, which is 71%, have been granted, which has awarded more than $660 million in retroactive benefits to eligible veterans and their families. If your claim has been denied, go to www.va.gov forward slash decision hyphen reviews forward slash legacy hyphen appeals to learn how to appeal a VA claim decision. For assistance in filing a claim, veterans can also contact and approve VSO at VA, and you can find those at va.gov forward slash VSO. To learn more about Agent Orange exposure, visit va.gov forward slash disability forward slash eligibility and find exposure to hazardous materials underneath eligibility on the left-hand side of the page. Click on it and Agent Orange is the first one on the list. You can do that or you can call 1-800-827-1000. Or you can wait for Born the Battle episode 220 as we interviewed one of the 24,000 plus veterans who have been approved. Uh, It's in the can and this veteran and a veteran that is involved in administering the program breaks down the experience of applying and getting approved So you get it from both sides, both the person that applied and the people that are administering the program. All right. Second one says, for immediate release, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs began using its electronic health record system on October 24th at select VA facilities in the Pacific Northwest and Las Vegas, marking the beginning of a transformation in how VA delivers care to veterans. More than 24,000 veterans receiving primary care at the Mann Grand Staff VA Medical Center in Spokane, Washington, will benefit from VA's first full implementation of the new software, which provides VA healthcare staff with a modern electronic health record that is inoperable with the Department of Defense, U.S. Coast Guard, and community care partners. The new system puts VA and DOD in a single electronic health record, which improves veterans' health care experiences by eliminating their need to keep or carry paper records detailing care received from either department. Care providers from both departments will be able to view, update, and securely exchange patient data in the new system, which also enables increased information sharing with providers in the communities where veterans live and receive care. Now, this may be nerdy of me, 
But if it works as advertised, uh, it's cool because once it's fully implemented uh, at all the VA medical centers, there's no more copying your DOD medical record and carrying it around. So this is this is actually kind of cool. In addition to the launch at the Mann Grand Staff VA Medical Facility and its four outpatient clinics located in Wenatchee, Washington, Libby, Montana, Quarter Lane, Idaho, and Sandpoint, Idaho, VA also began using the new system at the West Consolidated Patient Account Center, the VA Business Operations Facility in Las Vegas that supports billing for the Pacific Northwest. For more information on electronic health records, visit ehrm.va.gov. Okay, and finally, we finish a news release that has a really cool stat. It says, for immediate release, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced it achieved a record in its home loan program by guaranteeing more than 1.2 million home loans in fiscal year 2020, totaling more than $363 billion to help veterans afford home ownership. This record loan volume equates to approximately 3,200 loans per day and represents the most home loan guarantees in a single year in the history of the program. Borrowers who are experiencing a financial hardship due to COVID-19 can still contact their mortgage company directly or call 1-877-827-3702 to speak with a VA home loan specialist. Eligible veterans who are looking for a home can obtain a certificate of eligibility for a VA home loan benefit through e-benefits or by contacting their preferred lender. To learn more about VA home loan eligibility, home loan types, or to learn about the home loan buy-in process, go to va.gov forward slash housing hyphen assistance. Or you can listen to Born the Battle episode 150, where we broke it all down with the VA's home loan guarantee service. In addition, I would suggest that you listen to Born the Battle 196 with Navy veteran Brian Burjans, who gave out some updates since episode 150. All right, so this week's guest is a National Guard veteran. He is a former M60 machine gunner, so we're dating him a bit. But our guest was also the solution architect and lead instructional designer of the first redesign of the TAP Employment Workshop, you know, the, the TAPS program that you get when you get out, for the Department of Labor in more than 20 years. And he is now the Senior Vice President of the Social Enterprise Project of Easter Seals, titled the Veteran Staffing Network. The Veteran Staffing Network is dedicated to providing top-tier military talent to employers while assisting veterans, guardsmen, reservists, and military spouses secure long-term meaningful jobs. He is National Guard veteran David Muir. Enjoy. You know, when, I, when you first contacted me through Twitter, I didn't, which I don't use often at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still get notifications now and then. I was looking for the verified check mark because I thought it was ABC News's David Muir. <laughs> I was like, no, okay. And then and then we got to talking. Uh, uh, how did you find? How did you come across Born, Born the Battle? Um, you know what? It might have been an an open call that was forwarded to me, or I, I have no idea. And I'm an old infantry guy, dude. And I've had, you know, I played football and was in the infantry when concussions were cool. So I've had like 12 of them. So my memory <laughs> absolutely sucks. Gotcha. Um, but I want to say either I saw an open casting call or somebody said, Hey, have you checked out Tanner? Um, and I hadn't, no, it was actually somebody had asked, they said, you know, you might be a good fit for Tanner because I was looking to, um, just, figure out a way to get the word out about our program. Gotcha. And I think that's how I got you. I'd have to go back and look through my notes. I don't have them open. No, nope, no worries. No worries. Very, very cool. Very cool. I'm glad that the word's getting out. That's, that's, that's just good to hear. Uh, well, David, first question that we ask every veteran here on Born the Battle mm-hmm. is, is where and when did you decide that military service was going to be the next phase of your life? Well, I was uh, 16 years old and a buddy of mine, uh, who had joined the Virginia Army National Guard through their split-op program, said, uh, hey, just do me a favor and come and meet meet the sergeant and make me look good. <laughs> uh, and that was in April, uh, mid-April, and I turned 17 on the 4th of May. And uh, all he had to do was show me the video repelling out of helicopters and blowing stuff up, and I was all in. Uh, and I swore in to MEPS on my 17th birthday. Uh, as a oh, member wow. of the Virginia Army National Guard and split up and 
took my finals early my junior year so that I could go to Fort Benning, Georgia. And, uh, you know, through the split out program, went back after I graduated to finish AIT. So I voluntarily put myself in Fort Benning two summers in a row. Uh, young kid, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, what year was this? 1989. 1989. 90? Yeah. 89, I went for basic. And uh, in 1990, I went for AIT. Very good, because you know, uh, you, again, you served in the Virginia National Guard, and your bio said M60 gunner, and I was just wondering if you were dating yourself, or if it was because the M60 was still in the National Guard's armory. You know, uh, <laughs> the, it would be both, right? I am dating myself and the guard. I was using Vietnam era weaponry without a doubt. Uh, as a matter of fact, the saw at the tail end of my tenure, I want to say like ninety three, ninety four, the saw was just being introduced to the guard. Very good. Very good. So you were in for four years? Six. I did a six, six by two. Yep. So gotcha. two in the IRR that they didn't need me for, thank goodness. Yep, 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 yep. Um, you know, I wanted to deploy, but the only thing that really happened was um, Shield Storm, right? Yep. And that was just such a quick conflict. Um, I was in the 29th Light Infantry, and we backed up the 82nd, who did deploy. Yeah. But uh, they just didn't need us. And thank goodness, because the Guard's um, combat readiness back then was nowhere near what it is today. Um, sure. Sure. So. Was that also before Bosnia? Uh, right before. Yeah. So I got out and the guys that I served with went down there um, for that conflict. And I think they were down there for three or four weeks. Very good. Very good. While you were in David, um, who was either a, a best friend or greatest mentor? Um, I have two. So a best friend was a, a battle buddy of mine that I went to basic training with. Um, then we just happened to end up in the same unit uh, by circumstance because we went to the same college. And um, he's, he's a lifelong friend. I still talk to him today. Uh, his his uh, daughter is my goddaughter. So mm. um, really helped to form an amazing bond there. And then my greatest mentor would have been uh, Sergeant Daniels, who was a um, third ranger bat machine gunner. And when he transitioned out of active duty to go to school and, and was finishing his contract in the National Guard, um, he really stepped in and helped me go from uh, what I thought was a professional soldier and machine gunner uh, to a legitimate professional soldier and machine gunner. He really made sure that I was tight on my SOPs and my knowledge. He taught me how to break down the M60 and put it back together blindfolded. Um, so I would say Sergeant Daniels was, was definitely my mentor. Very good. Um, David, what was the impetus? What was the reason for, for getting out after only one contract? Um, you know, I, I uh, hate to admit it, but I wasn't as politically savvy, Tanner, as I am today. And um, I, I opened my mouth at times when I probably should have kept it quiet. My <laughs> platoon sergeant would definitely align with that comment uh, of Master Sergeant Robinson. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, my body was breaking down a little bit. I was a power lifter back in the day, and I'd had multiple mm. knee surgeries. Um, and, you know, the life of an inch infantryman, you need, uh, you need solid body parts. And yeah. uh, things were starting to break down. And, um, it was just time for me to move on to a new phase of my life. So I'd figured that I'd done my duty to serve my country, um, ducked a couple of, um, opportunities to deploy, which back then I didn't, I wanted to go, you know, cause they teach you to go. Yeah. Um, but in retrospect, now that I'm older and wiser and I'm working with these men and women who have actually been downrange, I realized just how fortunate I really was. So it was something that I thought I left in the rearview mirror until I um, until I got involved with the military um, redesigning TAP and then ultimately with Easter Seals and it just re-sparked my desire to to help my brothers and sisters. Yeah, I think everybody kind of knows when it's time to go. You know, um, I can definitely sympathize with with uh, with the Marine Corps being a young man's game and, and body mm -hmm. parts breaking breaking down. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and hats off to the people that do 20 or that can do 20 or 30 and, and keep it going, especially ones with families, you know, uh, without a doubt. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, everyone kind of knows it clicks in their mind. It's like, you know what? It's been a good ride time for the next phase. Cause no matter what, whether you get out four years or 30 years, uh, 
you do have to make that transition at some point. All athletes retire, Tanner. Uh, and that's what I tell these folks. So particularly the ones who are facing an early retirement, you know, and they say, man, I really thought that I was going to be, I was going to be in forever. And, you know, you hear the same kind of mindset from professional athletes and, and things like that. Is it, at the end of the day, you got to step down and let the young ones take over because that's just how, that's just how it works. Absolutely. Um, now, as, as reservists, you did, you, you did the reserve game. What did you do while you were in and, and, and how did you make a transition or was there a transition when you got out? Um, you know what? I got really lucky, Tanner. Being in the guard, serving in peacetime, I was going to school um, to to become a teacher. Yeah. Um, ultimately, um, and and so when I got out of uniform, it was really just I was turning all my stuff in, and I no longer had to report, right? And so it was just kind of a clean break. It's nothing like what. Um, our brothers and sisters are facing today when they've when they've lived it. Even if they're guard and reserve, there's a really good chance that they've been activated for multi months and multi occurrence deployments. So I served in a very different time than than what we faced during the last you know ten twelve years. Sure. Um, I've worked with an awful lot of people who have made that transition, and I see them struggle because it's just a different way of life. Um, and the people who don't know, who've never even been to something like a basic training or a large field exercise or, or anything like that, it is a 24-7 experience. Um, they let you sleep sometimes when sleep is something you can do, right? Yeah. They take care of you the best they can, but sometimes things don't work and you got to figure it out on your own. Yeah. And um, I think that's something that the civilian population just doesn't have perspective on. And I think that that's one of the main challenges that service members and their families face, quite frankly, when yeah. transition occurs, is that they they go from this 24-7 environment that is ultimate service, ultimate sacrifice mentality to intermingling. Um, you know, every once in a while, they'd have someone who's a civilian in their life, and, and now they're thrust into a world where... Less than 1% of the American population's worn the uniform at this yeah. point, unfortunately. And they're, they're more a foreigner in a lot of ways to civilians than, than people from other countries. It's, it's a complete shock in terms of culture. You know, it's, it, I think it's very akin to, uh, you know, just like university living. You know, it's very regimented. There's, you know, when you're getting paid, you know what your schedule's like you know, you know, the, the work culture, and then yep. you're going, you're just, you're boom, shock, you graduated, your, your contract's up and you're out in the world. Now what, you know, right. and, and it's something that, um, everyone, every veteran has to go through. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there, and there's different tracks to, to, to go and it's just the world's wide open. And it's, for me, it was both, uh, a little intimidating and, and exhilarating at the same time. You know, because you think you think the the world's your oyster. You know, it, it, very different ways that you can look at it, and, and very, very different ways that you could take at take it. Now, talking about the tracks, um, you worked for the Department of Labor, and in and in 2011, you developed a job search curriculum, uh, and, and it was the solution architect and lead instructional designer of the first redesign of the TAP employment workshop for the Department of Labor in more than 20 years. Now, David, let's some DC beltway speak, you know, like that's a lot of, uh, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of wordsmithing in that. Uh, what does that mean for someone in Nevada, Ohio, Kansas, Maine, sure. et cetera? So, uh, I wasn't actually working for the department of labor. I had my own business and Track. during the great reception, during the great recession, uh, when unemployment really spiked, um, one of the things I realized is America did not know how to find a job. Right, job search is a skill, and it's not really taught these days. And sure. the only thing I'd ever seen like it was TAP when I got out in 1995. Hmm. So being a job search expert at that point in my life, because I'd been in staffing for for more than eight years at that point, um, I went and audited a TAP class at a local base, and it was the same content in 2009 that they were delivering to me in 1995. 
it was clear mm. that what I was building was needed. And while I was there, I caught wind that the Department of Labor was going to put out a solicitation for the redesign. And uh, I ended up putting the right team together and ended up leading that recharge. So, so what oh, that so you, means you want you won the bid. I won the bid. Yeah, uh, outstanding. And so um, that's, just, that's, that's that another I, skill. That's another skill in itself, by the way. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And I got, and I got lucky, right? It was yeah. the right place, right time, the right stuff. Yeah. Um, the Department of Labor was really looking at um, the new world today and how agile job search had become. And they wanted to make an investment. And I, I got to tell you, Tanner, it was the first time I was exposed to a, a multi-branch experience. Um and there was a lot of um, discovery that had to happen between the five branches of service, OSD, DOD, and the Department of Labor. Mm. Um, and this was really the first attempt to revamp, right? Because all of those organizations work congruently um, to, to help veterans make that transition. And I will tell you that they have come light years. They've developed real formal partnerships um, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but the, the Marines came up with the Marine for Life program, which the Army quickly adapted and stole. <laughs> and it has become kind of now, the when you go When you go and talk to uh, my colleague Olivia Nunn over at the Soldier for Life program podcast, make sure, uh, you, te- make sure you tell her that. I just know the truth, right? And, and, you know, I'm I'm Army. I always will be. Although I got to tell you, if it was a Marine guy who grabbed me when I was 16 and showed me the rappelling out of helicopters video, I might have been a Marine. It was just right time, right place. Right? Sure, no worries, no worries. I'm um, gonna hold it against you. <laughs> it's okay. Well, I will tell you, I have a small anecdote. So, um, for a while there, during the the real height of conflict. Um, I was going over to Walter Reed and I was working with the Marine Corps um, and helping their men and women coming out of Walter Reed to prepare for transition. And I was talking with the young infantrymen um, there and, and, you know, trying to relate to him. And I said, well, you know, I'm a grunt, man. I get it. He said, well, no disrespect, sir, but you're not a grunt. What are you talking about? He said, you're army, right? Yeah. He's like, only a Marine can be a grunt. Oh, what do you, what do you? What are you talking about, man? Said I, I carried a heavy pack. I carried a machine gun, sweat, dirt, blood, same as you. I just didn't get as wet, right? <laughs> and uh, he said, "Well, sir, do you know where grunt comes from?" I said, "No." Now again, this is this is his perspective, but it stuck with me. He said, "It's from World War One, right?" The army sends their infantrymen to the school of infantry, but in World War One, the Marines just sent them through boot camp and sent them downrange. So grunt actually stands for ground reinforcement units not trained, which is an acronym given to them by the army who had been trained. Interesting. So with all due respect, sir, unless you're a Marine, you can't be a grunt. The guy totally shattered my dream because I like the Cro-Magnon, I'm a grunt mindset. And now <laughs> I've got to call myself an infantryman. Very interesting. I've never heard that perspective. That's uh, something I, I definitely will definitely look look up after this conversation. Um, so you were talking about the Marine for Life program and, and talking about how how these how this came together this this tap revamp. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it was really the first, and and you know what I worked with the, I worked with a great team, and we built the first revision. Um, it has since been honed and refined and continues to be. And I really do applaud the partnership between all of the, the branches of government and, and the service branches that are, are working in step together finally, because they've often done their own thing for a long time. They've yeah. really come to realize that it is the benefit of all for them to work in, in congruency. Um, and so that's kind of how I got reinserted back into the military life after being away for coming up on 15 years or so. Mm. Um, and there's a, I don't know if it's in the Marine Corps, but there's a phrase called soup sandwich, which just means that you're a hot mess as a soldier. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and I heard that and it was, it, it just kind of reawakened in me, the, the soldier. And, uh, and I dove right in. So, um, Shortly after I completed my efforts supporting the Department of Labor with the redesign, I heard about this organization called Easter Seals. How did you how did you how did you find your way there? 
Well, um, when I when I left, um, so, so the contract the Department of Labor finalized uh, just in December of eleven, right? Mm-hmm. I took a little time off because it was a pretty intensive thing, and then I started looking for work. And um, a friend of mine said, "Hey, here's this organization called Easter Seals that's looking for somebody that I think looks like you, right?" And they were looking for uh, someone who was prior service, who understood staffing, who understood job search, who 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 could um, you know speak with the media, who could who could really be kind of a the start of this really innovative program called the Veteran Staffing Network. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had heard the name Easter Seals. I didn't know anything about them other than they did nice things for people. I don't know anything about them either. It's it's something I've never heard before. But from what I read on the website, it's over 100 years old. Um, Correct. And I, is it a charitable organization? Is it a nonprofit? Is it for profit? It's not just a staffing company, right? It seems like they do a lot of stuff. Yeah. So Easter Seals is probably one of the most widely known and most un uh, most widely recognized, but most unknown organizations in the country. So okay. if you permit me, I'll kind of give you like the 30,000 foot view. Sure, please, please. Yeah, okay. please. So Easter Seals started in Chicago um, a little over 100 years ago as the Society for Crippled Children. Mm. Um, our founder uh, was visiting a hospital and saw all these kids with disability who were kind of languishing. They were, they were cast off. There was nobody who was an advocate for him. And he said that that's going to change. And that's how we got started. Mm. Um, interesting Jeopardy fact. Uh, the name changed to Easter Seals because we used to run a telethon selling stamps around Easter time as a fundraiser. And Easter Seals being a little bit nicer to the Society for Crippled Children, the same kind of stuck, right? Sure, sure. And so we're most widely known as supporting children with disability, but we actually started serving the military after World War II. And uh, organizationally, Easter Seals has a, a holistic mission of creating inclusive programs to empower people to live, learn, work, and play in their own communities. Very good. Now, is it a is it a nonprofit? Is it for profit? It is a nonprofit. Yep. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, organizationally, we're still headquartered in Chicago. Hmm. Headquarters um, focuses really on a national level advocacy and uh, awareness campaigns, and they also influence public policy on Capitol Hill on behalf of the populations that we serve. Very good. Underneath headquarters. There are 74, I believe, regional affiliates. And the easiest way, Tanner, to think about them is almost like a franchise. Okay. Each is its own 503C nonprofit. Um, and we, again, we all have that same mission. But because we're very much a grassroots community-based organization, the services that are offered affiliate to affiliate differ. So okay. best example I can give, I operate through the D.C., Maryland, and Northern Virginia affiliates. We've got a lot of military people in our demographic. So we've got a lot of military-oriented programming. But if you were to look at, say, the Easter Seals somewhere else, they may not have as robust of military programming. If that okay, but, you, but your affiliate does kind of operate nationwide, but it's just centered in the D.C., Maryland area. So the program that I operate, which is the Veteran Staffing Network, is really yeah. an anomaly. And we do function nationwide. And that's because of the transient nature of the population we're serving, right? If I'm working with Joe and he all of a sudden gets orders to go to San Diego, we're not going to let him go, right? Or if he gets orders to go to Kentucky or God forbid, Fort Polk, um, we're not going to drop him if there's no support there. I'm not a fan of Fort Polk. I don't know if you've ever been. (laughs) Nope, never been, never been, (laughs) never been. Um, so, So you're the Senior Vice President for Easter Seals Veteran Staffing Project. Um, which is based here in DC. It is it is a a, a national project. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the mission behind it? So, the mission behind it really is to um, empower people to be able to get their own job. Right. Okay. So, I'd mentioned earlier, job search is a skill. I'm, I don't know if you align with that. I'm assuming you would. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. As a and person. Made that transition? Absolutely. That's a, that's a complete skill to find a gig. Yeah. And it's not really taught anywhere um, with the exception of TAP, 
right? The employment workshop. Yeah. And if you've ever attended, um, you know, a three-day workshop, how much do you retain six months later? And on top of that, these men and women are also thinking about stuff aside from job search, like my benefits, where am I going to live? Yeah. Can't wait to go back and see my my significant other. I mean, there's a thousand things going through these people's minds when they go through the workshop. So, and and some people can't even get access to it, right? You think about a, a guard or a reserve member who may be not near a base. Um, they demobe, they get out, they're not going to attend TAP. Now, again, um, the services have really done a great job in creating some distance learning opportunities. So uh, I'm excited about that. But hmm. when we created the Veteran Staffing Network, that wasn't the case. Technology wasn't there yet. Yeah. Um, and so what we do is we have um, career coaches on staff. We've also got a curriculum that is online. And the goal is to teach well, it depends on your branch, but Snuffy, Schmuckatelli, Lance Corporal, Schmuckatelli, you know, Airman Smith, and I forget what the Coast Guard calls them. But to, to teach our <laughs> to teach our veterans and their family members the skill of job search, mm. and it's all at no cost to the service member or family member. Um, they can take Very their con they can take their experience online. They can um, uh, explore it with a, a career coach for one on one. Now. All that costs money, right? It really does. Yeah. And historically, employment programs for veterans have always been funded by the government or philanthropy, which is great, but it comes with restrictions on who can access the training, where it's delivered, frequency, et cetera. Some people fall through the cracks. Sure. And one thing, Tanner, I love about Easter Seals is we're, we were created to catch the people who fall through the cracks. That's what our organization does. Yeah. And so we welcome service members from any era, right? We welcome spouses from any era, caregivers of wounded warriors, guys and gals still serving in the Guard or Reserve or still in uniform and, and want to make their transition and they're thinking about it early. Basically, if you've ever worn a uniform or supported someone wearing a uniform, we're here to help you and it's at no cost. And so the way that we fund that, and this is a real innovation in the field of nonprofits, is we have adopted um, a for-profit business model. So the staffing industry, which is a multi-billion dollar business, mm -hmm. uh, made sense to us. So part of my job is to engage the business community in that, in that vein, if that makes sense. I was going to absolutely make sense. I was going to ask you what the strategy is behind, because it sounds like you've worked in staffing for many years. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to know what the strategy was behind companies that do do this, whether it be for-profit or non-profit. Is it interfacing with companies and then recruiting out of your population? Or is it more about interfacing with the person looking for a gig? Or is it both? Uh, do strategies like that differ between companies? I have no insight into this world. So I'm glad that that you're able to offer some of that. Sure. And happy to. So... Um... Uh, to your answer, it's a little bit of both, right? So traditional staffing companies engage a business. Um, let's say it's Tanner Incorporated and you're looking to hire a widget maker. Yeah. Um, in contingent staffing, which is what we are, um, you'll say, okay, Dave, go to work for me. Go find my widget maker. And if you find the right guy, I'll pay you, Right. Yep. Whether that person is a direct introduction and you hire that person directly and just pay me a finder fee or whether I hire that person and bill him or her out to you mm -hmm. for a markup. So that's the staffing industry. And so we engage businesses directly um, to become one of their vendors or service providers. And that's really what we are. We're a nonprofit service provider, which is still something that takes people a little while to get over in the commercial sector, right? They're used to being <laughs> hit up by all kinds of for-profit businesses. So when they hear Easter Seals veterans and staffing, what are you talking about? So a little bit of an education there, but they, they normally get it pretty well. How um, many companies have, have pretty much signed on board? Or We've know? had more than 300 employees. I call them employer partners versus clients because yeah. really the goal is I want these men and women that we're putting to work for them to become a member of their team long-term. That's our goal. Any names any veterans would know? Um, you know, I would, I would love to be able to share our employer partner list, but uh, contractually, um, unless okay. we've got their, 
their HR or not their HR, but their PR team on board. They like to keep that's just kind of standard. Um, Understood. But but I will share with you that we work with Fortune 500 clients on a regular basis, um, as Very well good. as little mom and pop shops. Very We've good. Put more than uh, 2,600 people to work in 35 different states across the country over the course of the last seven years. Wow. And uh, and that's the revenues from that Tanner have allowed us to provide career coaching to north of 11,000 people all around the world. We have people from the Philippines and Italy just as much as we have people from Fort Hood and, you know, Camp Lejeune and everything else. Now, I want to stress I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to get a veteran or a family member a job. Right? Sure. That's not the purpose of our program is not that. The purpose of our program is to offer them the education and the expertise and guidance. So they can reach out to us. Website is um, vsnusa.org. That's Victor Sierra November Uniform Sierra Alpha.org. Okay. I think if I remember and, my phonetic alphabet right. And, and, and message it to me in the uh, afterwards, and I can make sure it ends up in the blog on blogs.va.gov. So it'll be okay, a direct link. Perfect. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so they can go there. They can submit their resume to us, right? Because at a minimum, if I don't have their resume and a job shows up in their neighborhood that they're qualified for, I can't let them know about it. Sure. Right. Um, but they can also at that point access our um, e-learning platform so that they can gain access to as if they're do it yourself or kind of folks. If they would prefer to have one on one consultation with some of our career coaches, they can also make that request there. And then we can get that started. Um, and if you're a business looking to hire a veteran or a family member and you do work with staffing services, you just go to that same website yeah. and click the four employers tab, fill out the form, let me know, and I'll be giving you a call. Very good. What does your, your job portal uh, look like? And the reason I asked that, I was, I was wondering if you, uh, for those that are listening, that have, that have listened to um, Born the Battle, episode 207, Alex Calfee. Who has uh, he's a co-founder of a, of a of a website called Opline, and unlike most job hunting websites that use keyword searches to connect job seekers to employers, mm -hmm. Opline attributes its success to artificial intelligence that matches that matches that matches a user's complete profile. I have not heard of them. Uh, uh, if you wouldn't mind sending me a note, Tanner, about that, I would love to check them out. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, and that is uh, if anybody that's lis listening to this, that is episode two hundred seven in the archives here on board in the battle. As far as our job portal goes, we do have a, a job board. Um, there's anywhere from 70 to about 200 positions open at any given time all across the country. And those are directly with our employer partners. Very good. Um, one of the things we wanted to make sure is the only jobs we advertise are ones that we know are real. Unfortunately, there's a lot of organizations in the world that will post a job and it's kind of like a trolling ad. If you will, if you've ever been deep sea fishing, you know, you put the lines in the water and, yeah. and see what nibbles, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and that's, the, that's, the perpetual job opening that never seems to hire anybody. Exactly. And yeah. one of the things that we stress, Tanner, in job search is you should spend less than 10% of your time on job boards. You really should be focused on networking and, and, and research, right? Conversations are currency when it comes to finding a good job. And you want to talk with as many people who fit your target demo as possible. And again, these are the kinds of things that we cover uh, with our career coaching. You know, you're talking about look about networking. Uh, do social does social media play a part into that? And is there anything you can recommend on that front? Well, social media is um, it's the key, really. Um, social media is how you put your brand out there in the ether yeah. for people to find you. Um, and LinkedIn is probably the premier social media tool for connecting with people. Um, Interesting. Yeah, you can brand yourself, things like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, depending on your privacy settings and how easily you can be found. But you can use those things to, to brand yourself. As a matter of fact, one of the things I teach students is create a Twitter handle. Um, and start sharing articles and links about the type of job you're looking to get and the subject matter 
that you're looking to get to position yourself as a subject matter expert. Very but when good. it comes to actually reaching out, I mean, Tanner, quite frankly, I think I connected with you because of LinkedIn. I found you on LinkedIn and sent you a note. Yes. Right? And it's really yes. that powerful. So mastering LinkedIn um, to the best of your ability is huge. And there's an awful lot of supports out there to help you get that, whether that's a random YouTube video. But LinkedIn also has, if I'm not mistaken, a bit of a, I know it's not called an academy, but something to that akin to academy. Where they- LinkedIn learning. It used to be lynda.com. Yeah. yeah okay. I, I learned a lot of my, a bit my video production skills off, off uh, what it used to be lynda.com and LinkedIn bought them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also highly recommend joining groups, right? So this is something that um, job hunters, job seekers um, miss, right? And it's something that I want our brothers and sisters to take advantage of is go and join groups that are related to you, whether you know, whatever your branch of services, but also veterans or military spouses. Um, you can also look at <clears throat> whatever your particular profession is you're targeting um, and post in there. Hey, I'm a separating service member or I'm a, I'm a retired veteran or I'm, I'm a veteran military spouse. And I'm, I'm looking to find organizations that are interested in hiring people like me so that I can talk to them. Um, and one important thing is you need to, you need to interview companies. And this is something that job seekers forget a lot of times because they're under the pressure of job search, but you need to interview the employer as much as they're interviewing yeah. you. Yeah. Right. Make sure the culture is good for you. And it shows them that. Uh... I like to make, we make the parallel in, our content that um, jump search is a lot like dating Tanner, mm. right? And so it's got to be a match for both of you because if it's not a match, if, if they've got the job and you can just convince them to give you the job, but then you hate the job, you're going to leave, right? Yeah. And there's an awful lot of, if you look at statistically numbers, right? Um, the first job that a lot of veterans take when they get out, they're gone in 18 months. And the reason hmm. being is that that company did not do a good job in in vetting that veteran candidate and that and you know quid pro quo that veteran didn't do a good job of vetting that company as far as a fit across the board right Very however good. if a veteran is hired into a job that he or she is well suited for statistically and you can back this up with IVMF up there in Syracuse um they stay more That's than my alma mater. Okay, there you go. Um, well, statistically, you have a thirty percent longer tenure than your civilian counterpart if you're as a service member if you're hired into the right job, and that's just kind of the loyalty mindset that I think all of us carry. Absolutely. It, going back to Easter Seals, mm-hmm. um, it looks like there's a lot of other military and veteran services outside of the veteran staffing network. Correct. There's the Stephen A. Cohen military family clinic. There's the homeless and, and veteran reintegration services, the family respite program, the military family respite program, little warriors, child development program, adult day services. Uh, I think it's something for, for world war two veterans. Uh, so, you know, you, you kind of gave me the model of how the veteran staffing network operates. Who, who funds all this stuff? It, it's, that's a very diverse set of services. Yeah, I'm I'm really fortunate to be working for Easter Seals. And again, all of those services, Tanner, are the affiliate in the DC marketplace, right? Oh, wow. Um, but those aren't necessarily going to be offered in every Easter Seals affiliate. And I know this is a national program, so I just want to make sure each yeah. affiliate has their own portfolio programming. Um, sure. However, the Easter Seals, the DC affiliate that I work with, Easter Seals, DC, Maryland, Virginia, um, we're very fortunate in that we have a completely holistic outlook. The Stephen A. Cohen um, Military Family Clinic is part of the Cohen Veterans Network, um, which is another innovation. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but that might be something if you are. Um, I think it would be a great podcast for you. So Stephen A. Cohen, um, son was a Marine, hmm. um, came home, and uh, Stephen A. Cohen is a hedge fund guy, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, fairly wealthy. Yeah. And uh, his son came home and said, dad, my brothers and sisters are killing themselves because they can't get an appointment. And so he launched the Cohen veteran network, which offers uh, low cost to no cost mental health services um, for veterans and their family members. Interesting. 
um, so that they're not, it's meant to be a bridge, right? So if you make an appointment with the VA, for example, it may take six, eight weeks for you to be able to get to your appointment. And if someone needs mental health services today, that's what the Cohen Veteran Network is for, is that it's to bridge that gap to help them get to the services that they need, but to offer that emergency su support. Um, our Little Warriors program is actually due to our proximity to Walter Reed. Um, you know, when um, Joe gets blown up, and I hate to use that phrase, but it's sure. the reality. Yeah. Um, they, pick up, they pick up spouse and kids from anywhere USA and plop them at Walter Reed. And Walter Reed's got a drop-and-go daycare center. But, you know, the service member is trying to figure out his or her new existence. And the spouse is busy dealing with meds and doctor appointments and everything. These kids aren't really in a developmental program. And Easter Seals uh, in D.C. has a five-star daycare system. And so we offer free early childhood education to families who have little ones at Walter Reed. Wow. Our uh, adult day service is, is meant for senior citizens and um, adults with a, a lot of times mental disability, um, where it's a place to go so that they're not just sitting there staring at the wall. Um, we have activity directors um, and do all kinds of fun things with them, take them shopping. Um, we actually have an intergenerational center where we bring the, the pre-K kids in to do activities with the seniors, uh, which has <laughs> really good. been shown to have amazing outcomes. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's all pre-COVID. We're still trying to figure out the logistics of, of the new universe with these programs. Sure. Um, but Easter Seals, and that's just a snapshot of who we are, um, but Easter Seals as an entity across the country does amazing things and really does change lives for the better for people. Very good. Very good. And it sounds like um, there, there must be different... Um, models to keep all these things going when it comes to funding because that's a lot of different stuff it is right so some is pay for service um uh easter seal does rely on the generosity of an awful lot of amazing people our board yeah. of directors is fantastic um we've got a lot of corporate sponsors who are just amazing so for example my program the veteran staffing network was stood up by grants from uh, Capital One and the Kfritz um, Foundation, um, the Kessler Foundation, and uh, and a number of others, just to get us up and running. Yeah. Um, and so we've got a lot of great corporate sponsors as well as individual donors who really do make a difference. Very, very good. Very good. Um, David, what is one thing that you learned in service that you carry with you today? Uh, that the sun will rise. Um, you know, if, uh, if you're ever in dark times and you're cold and you're wet and you're hungry, uh, this, this is going to date me, Tanner. We used to have heat tabs. Okay. Uh, I don't even know right? what that so, is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So heat tabs was essentially a chemical pill that uh, you could light with one spark and it would burn for about a half hour. Think of it like, okay. a, you know, one of the logs that you put in, in your fireplace yeah. to start yeah. the fire. So it was about, you know, it was about, I don't know, three inches long, um, about an inch wide. And it was great for starting a fire or heating your coffee or whatever. Gotcha. And we used to call the sun the great heat tab in the sky because mm. you could just be sitting there shivering and sad and miserable uh, and just, just you know, I don't know if you've ever asked this question, but why the hell did I join the military? Uh, it popped up in my mind a few times, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but what I learned in the military is that no matter how hard it gets, the sun's going to come up. Sure. You're going to get another opportunity, and it's really up to you as far as your resilience and your resolve to to how are you going to approach that day. And I would say that that's probably my favorite lesson I've learned. Um for life out of my military experience. Very good. Very good. Um, I know you work with, uh, with East, I know you're affiliated with Easter seals, but is there a veteran nonprofit or a, an individual veteran who you've worked with or have had an experience with who you, who you'd like to mention? Oh, man, there's been so many over the years, Tanner. Um, gosh, if I have to pick my favorite one, it'd probably be Renee. Um, Renee, is a classic example of why my program is so needed. So Renee was a Coast Guard wife 
19 and a half years. Um, unusual for a Coast Guard family, but they bounced around six times, right? Coast Guards typically settled in one spot. Yeah. She didn't get a chance to work in three of the six spots. Um, when she got out, they divorced, which is not uncommon in the military, unfortunately. That's not uncommon for anybody these days. Yeah. Um, she went to apply for spouse support for job search and was denied. Care to guess why? No, I, I because she's divorced? I, I have no idea. Because she's Coast Guard. You see, spousal support is provided by DOD. And she's DOD. The Coast Guard is, is DHS. Is, yeah, DHS, yeah. Right now, wow. I think, I believe policy has since been remedied for that. But because of the veteran staffing network uh, and its existence, we were able to work with Renee. And we were able to help Renee kind of go through the who are you and what do you have to offer? Because service members and spouses alike, that's a big question mark is who am I? What do I have to offer? You know, as an old machine gunner, what do I have to offer? I I got trained to hide behind rocks, trees and bushes and blow stuff up real good. Right. Mm. Who's going to hire? There's not a lot of those jobs out here. And so really intrinsic skills, it's intrinsic skills. You got to remember those intrinsics. It's and, and they're so transferable, right? But you don't know what you don't know. So, sure. uh, one of my favorite examples is I was I was teaching a TAP class during the pilot, um, and I was down in Norfolk, and the homework on Tuesday night was to go home and think of three stories that we could put on your resume to talk about. And so I'm setting up the class. It's about uh, 0630, and uh, this young kid comes in, Carlos, and he's like, you know, Dave, I can't think of anything. I said, what do you do in the Navy, son? He said, I'm the right-hand man to the air boss. And I stopped him right there. I said, oh, I'm Army. I don't know what an air boss is. And neither does anybody else. Do you know what an air boss is, Tanner? Nope, no idea. So the air boss is the slang term for the officer who's in charge of all the aircraft on an aircraft carrier. (laughs) Wow. Right? Yeah, kind of a big job. Yeah, Air a little bit, Makes little sense, bit. right? <laughs> so that that officer is typically focused on what's airborne, right? Mm. So this kid, Carlos, from 25 to 28 was responsible for the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. Wow. So, you know, it was his job to schedule people. It was his job to make sure safety trainings were up to date. Oh, by the way, he was responsible for the operations to launch like $10 billion of United States property in the air during a scramble drill, right? Yeah. It's basically a chief of operations for, for the entire carrier. Yeah. Kind like, of a big deal. Yeah. A little bit. A little bit. A, big deal. a lot of skills and involved in that. A lot of skills. When I, was, when I was talking to Carlos and I shared that with him, he's like, oh, I never thought about it that way. I just did my job. Right. And yeah. so that's the thing. Is service members, and I stress any employers who might be listening to this, understand that they just do their job. They don't realize how big a job they have. They're just capable of doing big jobs, and they do it flawlessly. Um, and as I go out and educate businesses, and that's another part of what I do is I teach businesses how to become veteran-friendly employers. Very good. And you're amazed. it's amazing to see how many people just have really no perspective, and that's just because, you know, Unfortunately, today, military live in the, the biggest gated communities in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. after World War II, I think 20% of the population had served. Everybody lived next to a veteran. Yeah. And now, you know, you, if you're a civilian, you got to have a clearance to get on base practically. And they don't need to leave. They've got movie theaters and shopping malls and restaurants and stuff on base. So we don't mingle with the civilian population the way that we used to. And that's why they're a big anomaly. Tracking, tracking. Um, so Renee, how did, what was the uh, success story on Renee? So Renee, actually, after working with her for about three and a half, four months, um, she had an affinity for media and she had done- I like her already. Um, right, yeah, I bet you would. <laughs> um, but she was more on the photographic side of things. Um, Mm. but, uh, she had done an awful lot of stuff like, you know, photography, uh, doing photography for some friends' weddings and just some nature stills and everything like that. And eventually we got her into a newspaper, a couple of them, actually a community newspaper, um, and, and another 
like local county newspaper as yeah. a photojournalist. So she would go out and cover events and uh, she absolutely fell in love with it. And uh, I haven't talked to her in a couple of years, but you know, she, we ended up finding a job for her or, or help. No, I didn't find it for her. She found it for herself, but we helped kind of focus that light that was coming out of her into something pointed that she could then lock onto a target and go get it. And that, and that's, Renee's probably my favorite story after the probably more than a thousand people I've helped since I've been with Easter Seals. Outstanding. Um, David, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, is there anything else that I didn't ask or that I've missed that you think no, it's important to share? I don't think so, Tanner. I, I, I really appreciate the fact that, um, that you invited me on. I'm excited to be a part. I love what you're doing. Keep it up, brother. Appreciate that. Um, get the word out about the amazing things that are going on in the space and, and your support of um, our brothers and sisters. And I'm happy to uh, to plug you in some other people that I know if you're looking for other guests who uh, who might have some relevancy for what you're trying to broadcast. That sounds great. That sounds great. Um, any, any parting shot to anybody that might be listening to this? Um, if you're a job seeker, keep your head up. I know unemployment's high right now. Um, it doesn't mean there's not jobs out there. People are getting hired every day. If you need help, reach out to the Veteran Staffing Network, and we'll see what we can do to help you out. If you're an employer and you're interested in having a veteran hiring program, you've been tasked maybe with being a diversity, uh, finding a diversity chain that includes veterans, please do reach out to us. Again, that website is vsnusa.org, and, uh, and let's chat and see if I can't help you out. And, um, and keep listening to War uh, in the Battle. Strength is something earned, not given. Dedication means pursuing your passion every day. Healing is something we do together. And together, we put veterans first. Search VA Careers to find out how. I want to thank David for coming on Born the Battle. For more information on David, he has a profile on rocketreach.co and on LinkedIn with his bio and contact information. Our Born the Battle Veteran of the Week comes by the way of our VA Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our digital team recognizes a veteran for their service on all of our social media accounts and on blogs.va.gov. You can send in your own nomination by emailing newmedia at va.gov. Kevin Elder began his service with the Marine Corps in February of 1987. He first served at Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton in California with the 7th Engineer Support Battalion. Later, he transferred to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina with the 8th Engineer Battalion. In November of 1990, Elder deployed to Kuwait for Operation Desert Shield and later Operation Desert Storm. He was discharged from the Marine Corps in February of 1993. Outside of his service, Elder obtained a Bachelor of Arts in Criminal Justice and a Master of Public Administration at the City University of New York, Queens College. Additionally, he served as a New York City police officer for eight years. Elder currently works at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs as a motor vehicle operator, assisting veterans with transportation to their appointments. He has maintained close working relationships with local veteran organizations, such as the American Legion and the VFW. When the COVID-19 crisis began, Elder established the Guardians for Veterans, a nonprofit organization which helps disabled veterans and individuals with limited mobility, homebound individuals, and seniors within his local community by organizing food drives and ensuring his community has adequate food and supplies. His organization has also aided veterans with finding housing and provided transitional services such as vocational training assistance. Elder currently resides in Nassau County, New York, with his wife and two children. Marine Corps veteran Kevin Elder, thank you for your service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov. Include a short write-up, 
and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app, not a phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. Okay, David, uh, I'm going to, I'll stop the main recording there, but, uh, every once in a while we do what's called an after the show show just for the lack of, lack of a better, lack of a better name. That's what we call it. Um, so we're not recording right now, right? Oh, we are, we are, we are, we are. Uh, but usually if everybody has, if the listener has listened into the entire podcast, which is sometimes over an hour, um, I give them a little bonus after the music is done playing and it, and it's sometimes a random story from a guest about their time, either their time in service or their time at doing something else that, that, that may relate to the, to the listener. Do you have any such story that you yes, like to share? Yes, I do. Okay. I sure do. Okay. <laughs> so I have the greatest and most painful way to get rid of poison sumac uh, ever. Interesting. I'm interested. I'm interested. Let's hear it. So um, we were uh, down in Fort Polk. This is why I love Fort Polk so much. Um, we were down in Fort Polk for JRTC, it's Joint Readiness Training Command. It's a simulated deployment. Yeah. And um, for those of you who are listening and, and, and are familiar with Stand 2, you know what I'm talking about. But for those who aren't, Stand 2 is that point of dawn, uh, just as the sun's coming up, where everybody has to be prepared because that is one of the two most common times for an attack to happen. Yep. So... Um, it was nighttime and we were doing a road march and it was almost stand two. So we all got off and, and as a machine gunner, you dig what's called a, well, any infantry person should dig what's called a hasty fighting position. Yep. And it's essentially just digging out a little bit of a trench um, so that you're lower to the ground. You're not as easy to shoot, yep. right? So uh, we get to notice stand two is about a half hour away. We go into the brush. Uh, you know, a lot of times if you don't have your, your E-tool with you, you just dig your hasty fighting position with your hands in a rock, which is how I did mine. <clears throat> As the sun comes up, I realize that I have dug my hasty fighting position in a bed of poison sumac. <laughs> <laughs> Consequently, later that day, I ended up having a heat stroke and had to be medevaced out. Um, so I'm I'm back in the barracks in the recovery after my heat stroke, and I've got this poison sumac erupting over about seventy percent of my body. And I, I had so much calamine lotion on me, Tanner. I looked like the pink marshmallow man. I just it was just terrible. It was all swollen. <laughs> all pink with camera and it wasn't doing a damn thing. <laughs> and this one's, this one sergeant, uh, he was a master sergeant. Uh, I don't even remember his name, but he was grizzled, like leather face, missing a tooth. He, he was weathered. Let's just he's put seen, it that he's way. He's seen he, some he, stuff in his life. He's seen some stuff. Yeah. And he saw me and he's like, you pink fool. He's like, do you want that itch to stop hurting? I was like, yeah, sergeant. He's like, listen, I'm going to give you a secret. But you're not going to like it. What is it? He's like, take that gallon of bleach there and take that wash rag. You go stand in a shower and you scrub every part of your body until it hurts so bad you can't take it anymore and then scrub it a little more. And I promise you the itch will stop. 
And Tanner, I got to tell you, it was a pretty excruciating 25, 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. But that poison sumac stopped itching and scabbed up and I was good to go. So if you got a good pain threshold and you're covered in poison sumac, I recommend a bottle of bleach and an old nasty rag. And uh, <laughs> about 25 minutes in the shower to cure your problem, to cure your itch. <laughs>